From Square Two, this is What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square Two, and along with my longtime friend, Eric Kalis, and co-founder at Square Two and six-time entrepreneur, Eric and I will answer the question CEOs have every single day, what's wrong with revenue? You can be part of the Livecast show where we'll answer your questions every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, or catch the show on demand on YouTube and on all your favorite podcast networks. Also check out all our audio and video content on Square2 Plus at the square2marketing.com website. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to episode eight of What's Wrong With Revenue. Today, we're going to dive deep into the topic of metrics. And in a lot of cases, what's wrong with revenue? You don't have the right metrics. You're not tracking the right numbers. You don't know how to improve it. Eric, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Michael. Glad to hear it. Uh, I see you're coming to us live from the card room. Yes, in Vendor, New Jersey. I found a place where I could be uh, quiet and do the live cast today. Very good. Very good. So uh, real quickly, <clears throat> thanks for joining. You can catch the show in its recorded version on our YouTube channel. You can catch the show in its recorded version on our website at the bottom of the page in the footer. There's a uh, link called What's Wrong with Revenue. All of our shows are placed there after the show. You can also subscribe to be notified about upcoming shows and you can submit questions. Don't forget, you can always submit questions live during our show. We'll keep an eye on it in Zoom at the bottom. There's a Q&A button. Please feel free to submit some questions. We do have questions going into the show. And real quick, let me set the stage. So Eric, revenue generation is no longer an art. It's not really driven by opinions and assumptions. In the past, people would sit around rooms in their management team meetings and say, well, I think this is happening, or I think this is going on. Last, when My last job, this is what was happening. It's really not true anymore. It's really become a science. It's 100% scientific, and it's driven by numbers. And there are a ton of quantitative metrics in all three growth areas, marketing, sales, and customer service, that you can keep an eye on. And you really need metrics in marketing, sales, and customer service to make solid decisions. So it's not just about looking at dashboards. A lot of people think when it comes to metrics, well, do I have my dashboard set up and can I see numbers? And that's all part of it. But the real secret here, and we're going to talk about this a lot today, is how do you use the numbers to uncover insights? What are the numbers telling you? And how do you use that intelligence to drive your action plan and how you optimize your revenue growth model going forward? And it's kind of a tricky skill set. A lot of people can build dashboards. A lot of people can do reports and talk to you about how their campaigns are doing, but less people are able to look at the data and uncover insights. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. I also got some feedback on the show and it was a little like this. It's better to show than to tell. So I have a little show and tell segment today where we're going to introduce you to the revenue cycle and how that helps you from a metrics and an insights perspective. It'll be a little tricky for our podcast listeners, but we'll do our best to articulate the concepts we're showing. If you're catching the show live or you're catching the show on video, I think some revenue cycle visuals will help you understand and, and maybe unlock a new perspective on metrics at a high level. Eric, anything you want to add? No, but for our podcast listeners, just email Mike at square2marketing.com. We'll send you the slides. Not only will we send you the slides, but if you like what we're talking about and you'd like us to do a revenue cycle model for your company, we do them for prospects all the time. We're happy to do one for you. And if you want us to look at your specific metrics, just email me and ask me, Mike at square2marketing.com. We'll set you up with a time for us to ask you a couple of questions and build your own revenue cycle model. So free prize inside for all you Seth Godin fans. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, I actually do have quite a few questions, so we'll try to get to those too. But Eric, before I show the revenue cycle model and we talk about kind of metrics at a high level, do you want to kind of introduce it conceptually? Like what do we use it for and how does it help people think about their revenue plans differently? Sure. 
So let's use as our example, a technology company that's selling a $250,000 technology engagement, right? Nobody wakes up and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend $250,000 this afternoon on IT. There's a process that people go through to buy things. And I'm talking about specific to large engagement size, complex sale, um, um, uh, a long sales cycle, and mostly B2B. There could be some B2C in there too, but the large engagement size typically is going to be B2B. When you have those four criteria, people tend to behave in a certain way. The revenue cycle model simply captures their behavior and quantifies it into eight stages, each with its own metrics. And while that sounds a little bit granular, it's for a reason, because if we know that people have to go through eight steps in order to spend $250,000 on IT services, we have to watch their behavior as they come through the sales journey and make sure that it's smooth. And if things are out of whack on our metrics, that's a red flag to us to go to that area and improve it so people aren't getting hung up or there's friction somewhere in there. And we can take them as quickly and effortlessly from the starting point to the finish line. What we do in a revenue cycle model is to basically snap a baseline of where the company is today and then understand their goals and objectives of where they want to be and the delta between the two, the current performance and the desired performance is the work that we have to do in order to achieve those results. So too many people, as you very elegantly said to open the show today, Mike, are just kind of winging it. And there's no reason to, because if you look at the data, you can understand exactly where the problems are. I had this conversation earlier today with a prospective client of Square Twos, and they were talking about leads, 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 leads. So I said, well, let's get into it a little bit. And I asked them a very simple question. What's your close rate? Out of every 10 people you pitch, how many end up signing your agreement? And he said, typically one, maybe two out of 10. Now, it's, it's a problem that he didn't have that number accurately at his fingertips. That's another story. But let's talk about a 10 to 20% close rate. It's just not enough. You're doing all this work. You're talking to all these people. And you're only closing 10% or 20% of the people that you speak with. So I said to him, hey, I know you want more leads. But I think the low-hanging fruit here is to help your sales team get that close rate up to 33%. 45% so that we can utilize the same leads we currently have to drive some revenue. And then we could take the profit from those new deals that we, those extra new deals that we got and reinvest it in the top of the funnel or beginning of the journey and get more leads that way. So let's reorder what we want to do here to get the best and fastest results. It was like he was struck by a lightning bolt. The information was so different than he was thinking that it really shook him a little bit. And he said, you're right, because I'm already getting three or four sales opportunities a week. If I just close one or two extra a month, that would actually be a big boost in what we're doing now without spending any money on marketing campaigns. So, you know, once again, the only reason that we would know that is because we identified that the close rate is below the benchmark that we would typically like. And now, because none of uh, the people in the audience today have an unlimited marketing budget, we could take our very small pile of marketing dollars and invest them in the areas where we'll get the biggest bang for the buck. And that's where metrics gives us insights. Does that make sense, Mike? Yeah, it's an awesome explanation. And under the guise of show instead of tell, let's take a look at a, a revenue cycle. So um, let me share my screen first. That would probably be good. Uh, share screen. And can you see that? Sure can. Okay. So I'm going to show you a revenue cycle. This is a sample revenue cycle. And I'm also going to want you to pay attention to, as we go through this, there's a, a compounding factor that I've been able to illustrate in this revenue cycle model that will actually show you as we walk through this, how improving each stage of the cycle drives considerable, considerable growth at the end of the cycle in terms of new clients a month. So what you're looking at here is, as Eric said so nicely, a baseline snapshot of a company's current revenue cycle model. This illustrates how many people are coming to their website, how many people are turning into new contacts. There's a difference between new contacts and marketing qualified leads. You may get people who are trying to sell you something on your website. You may get people who are applying for jobs on your website. You may get 
uh, students who are looking to talk to you about research who convert for them. So not every new contact is a marketing qualified lead. So there's a step down there. Not every marketing qualified lead is a sales qualified lead, meaning there may be people who want to talk to you who are not necessarily good opportunities for the sales team. So we want to identify that too. Not everybody who wants to talk to you is going to be ready to buy. So there's a step down from sales qualified lead to sales opportunity. And yes, folks, not everybody who's a legit sales opportunity ends up asking for a proposal. And as Eric mentioned, obviously no one closes, well, I guess very few people close 100% of their submitted proposals. So you can see in this particular example, each stage of the revenue cycle and the conversion rates and the current level of performance, in this example, the company is getting one new client a month. So out of 5,000 visitors, they're getting one new client a month. Now, the goal here is to figure out what desired performance is. And I'm going to step you through that now. Eric, if you want to comment on any of this along the way, just jump in. Okay. Sure. Okay. So if you look at the bottom now, you can see that we're starting to build the desired state. And by the way, the, the stages at the bottom are uh, cyclonic buyer journey stages, pre-awareness through delivery. Uh, the cyclonic buyer journey is the methodology that Square 2 uses to, in a very granular, granular way, identify where the prospects are in their buyer journey. And then I just use some common vocabulary at the bottom to align uh, our buyer journey methodology with what people are typically looking at, marketing qualified leads, sales qualified leads, et cetera. So in this case, if we were able to improve website performance by just a modest 20%, going from 5,000 to seven. Not suggesting we need to go from 5,000 to 70,000, right? Just a few thousand improvement in website traffic. And if we were to able to improve their site-wide conversion rate from 1%, which is okay, to 1.5%, again, modest improvement. Not talking about taking them to 3 or 4 or 5%, just a half a percentage point improvement in site-wide conversion rate. You're going to go from 50 new contacts to 105 new contacts. Okay, that's a significant improvement. In fact, with a 40% increase in site traffic, we can drive 110% increase in new contacts. Now, like I said, not all of those new contacts are going to be leads, but a pretty good percentage of them are going to be marketing qualified leads. Again, you're not offering iPads for conversion. You're not offering free trips to the Bahamas for conversion. You're offering educational content. You're offering uh, um, good guidance and advice. You're, you're offering um, insights, uh, all things that help people along the way. Remember, they're in the education and consideration stage of their buyer journey. They're looking to learn about the decision they're about to make. So with a 90% conversion rate from new contacts to marketing qualified leads, you went from 45 to 95. Again, that's a significant increase. 111% in marketing qualified leads. Now, if we're doing a better job increasing marketing qualified leads, there's a pretty good chance we can do a better job driving sales qualified leads or the people that want to talk to sales reps from 15% in the current state to 20% in the desired state, which has a compounding factor of taking you to 19 sales qualified leads a month from seven or 171% improvement. So again, if you're watching this at home, you can see the compounding factor right in front of you. A 40% increase in traffic has produced 171% increase in sales qualified leads. If we keep playing this out and we get slightly better in sales opportunities, you went from four a month to 11 a month. That's 175% improvement. And if we move more percentage of those into the proposal stage, that's a 200% improvement in proposals submitted from three to nine. And if we do a little bit better on close rate from 33% to 44%, we can take you from uh, one a month to four a month, and that's a 300% improvement. So you can see the compounding factor here along the way. And this illustrates, again, we're talking about metrics. 
These are the high level metrics that I think you want to be looking at if you're trying to drive revenue in the company. Now we're going to go into a whole bunch of other metrics and talk about a, a whole uh, a series of other topics around metrics, but we wanted to bring you in at the highest level and introduce you to this concept because this is it folks. If you're trying to drive the business and you're trying to close more business and drive revenue, these are the numbers that you need to look at. Now there's a lot of other things that spin off of this. There's a lot of other calculations that spin off of this, but the bottom line is if you're working on each of these points along the way, you can really drive your, your uh, total number of new customers every single month in a very significant way. Eric, anything you want to add? No, but the way you described it seems very scientific and not like, uh, you know, shooting from the hip. And I think that's a big point. Yeah. And, and to your point earlier, Eric, you, when you start to look at your business like this, you very quickly identify where the weak spots are. And the weak spots allow you or companies like us to focus energy in those areas. So if our conversion rate is not performing, we can put more offers on the website. We can try to drive more conversions. If we're not getting sales qualified leads, we can focus on ways to convert people who are ready to talk to reps and are ready to buy. If the reps are having trouble moving people through the sales process, we can look at tools and technology and sales process to make that better for them. And Eric illustrated a beautiful point earlier about close rate. Honestly, it's one of the most neglected metrics and Eric is 100% right. Most people don't know for sure what their close rates are and that is almost always the best place to start. And you're talking about a very modest improvement here from 33 to 44% and 11% improvement and you're talking about a major improvement in terms of num number of new clients sold. So I did a little summary here, and then we'll take a couple questions and we'll dig into this in a little more detail. So these are some easy metrics to track and report on. They're readily available. Um, any marketing automation, even Google Analytics to some extent will give you information like this. So this is kind of our 101 class uh, around metrics for tracking and reporting. Monthly visitors to your website, very easy to get your hands on. Site-wide conversion rate, very easy to get your hands on. New contacts, marketing qualified leads. Sales qualified leads might be a little trickier, but still doable in a CRM. Sales opportunities, once a rep classifies a lead as, an, as a deal or an opportunity, bang, you got your number. And obviously new customers should be very easy to track because there's revenue associated with that and onboarding and, and, and all kinds of things when you get a new customer. So I would consider this list 101 around metrics in terms of how you're doing. Now, I did a 201 because this is more advanced stuff. So some of the conversion rates in the revenue cycle are going to be a little harder to calculate. It might be a little harder to understand your conversion rate for marketing qualified lead to sales qualified lead, but that can be set up with some um, tuning of any marketing automation and CRM platform. The same thing with SQLs to sales ops. As long as you know when that, when, when that uh, company or deal moved from one stage to the other, if there's a timestamp associated with that movement, then we can count them and track the conversion rate. So again, it's a little trickier, but not impossible. Close rate on sales opportunities is just a calculation, number of sales opportunities and the number of those that closed. Close rate on proposals submitted, again, that's just flat close rate as Eric nicely uh, articulated earlier. Sales cycle in days is interesting. Again, it's a little harder to track, but doable. And again, you timestamp when someone comes to your website for the first time or when a sales rep enters a new contact into your CRM. And when they finally sign their paperwork and become a customer, you just track the number of days from beginning to end and you create a report that shows your sales cycle. You want to be driving that sales cycle down as fast as you can, as, as quickly as you can. The shorter your sales cycle, the more revenue you're going to generate. Um, the percentage of MQLs that close is an indicator of how good the quality of the leads are. So to give you a quick example, if marketing has generated 100 leads and only one of them closes, well, that's great that they generated 100 leads, but they're not good, high-quality leads. If marketing generates 100 leads and 50% close, look, you can see the difference between the quality of those leads. So you want to know this number, and you want to make sure that that number is going up as well. Same thing with sales-qualified leads that close. You want the sales rep spending their time 
with people that are serious, with people that have budget, with people that have pain and power. And if they're wasting their time talking to people that are never going to become customers, that will be uncovered by a percentage of SQLs that close number also. And then this might be a bit of a stretch here, but I like to really see how good a job the website is doing at producing sales opportunities. You can track that too. The number of people that come to your site that turn into legitimate sales opportunities is an indication about how good your website is at attracting a high qualified sales opportunity. So again, these are advanced. They, they take a little more work, but they're very doable in terms of putting together some reports and dashboards for you. And I have one more thought, and then we'll answer some questions. And this is going to be interesting. A lot of people ask us about averages or industry benchmarks. Well, Mike, these are interesting numbers, but how, how, what kind of site-wide conversion rate should we have? Or what should our sales cycle be? And you know, what percentage of, of MQLs to close? Like what's a good number there? And I'm gonna answer that in this way. You, know, you can Google some of these numbers and, and get some general idea about what is a reasonable number to be, but I don't find that to be incredibly valuable. I think what you really wanna do and this is where the revenue cycle also becomes interesting. You want to know what your numbers are. You want to snap a baseline of your numbers today, and you want to know what they are. And then you just want to work on improving those every single month. If you have a legitimate and <clears throat> concerted effort to improve your numbers, whatever numbers you're tracking month over month, they're going to get better. And your revenue cycle is going to improve and so is your ability to hit your revenue goals and objectives and your sales targets. So I wouldn't worry or spend a ton of time worrying that your site-wide conversion rate is half a percent instead of one. It's half a percent. Next month, let's get it to 0.75. The month after that, let's get it to one. The month after that, 1.2. And let's just keep working to improve it month over month. If you can show concerted up and to the right every single month, you're going to get where you want to go. And with that, I will take a break. Eric, if you want to add something, I'll stop sharing and we'll handle a couple of questions. Nope, we're on the right track here. I hope we are providing lots of value for the audience today because this is where the rubber meets the road. Good, and I hope if you're listening and not watching, we did a good job explaining it to you. And again, Eric's right. If you want to take a look at the slides, I'm happy to send it to you. Just email me, mike at square2marketing.com. And the offer still stands if you want a revenue cycle model for your company email me and we will set that up as well. So um, I believe I'm not sharing anymore, right? Eric? You are, you are not sharing. Okay, great, thank you. Okay, so let me answer a couple questions. And there we go, answer a couple questions. So this is a good one. This came in last night. I hear a lot about vanity metrics. Can you explain what those are? And if they're not what we should be looking at, what other metrics should we be using? So Eric, besides the revenue cycle, which we talked about, give us a little talk about vanity metrics versus some other marketing metrics that maybe we wanna look at that are a little more uh, telling in terms of how the marketing campaigns are working. Well, companies that are engaged in sales and marketing activities are looking for results. So the non-vanity metrics are the ones that are completely about results. Sales meetings per week would be a very direct uh, uh, metric that you would look at that would go to the end results. Mike, give a few examples of vanity metrics and then we'll do like a back and forth. Yeah, so vanity metrics is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Some people do view marketing qualified leads as a vanity metric, you know, in terms of Eric's uh, example, marketing should be accountable for qualified sales opportunities. So some people feel MQLs is a vanity metric. Some people feel um, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a ton of vanity metrics around social, mm. like number of likes, number of followers. So a lot of people feel like social metrics are vanity metrics. Um, you know, open rate around email might be a vanity metric, you know, just because someone opens your email doesn't mean they're clicking on anything, doesn't mean they're converting, doesn't mean they're getting into your uh, sales process at all. So it really kind of depends, but it is a common term that a lot of people use. I'm not a fan of the idea of vanity metrics because I think, you know, if you care about it, if you're trying to track it, then it's important to you. You know, I might not necessarily roll it up and report it to the CEO, 
but it may give me some indication about how something's working positively or negatively that might influence my decisions around a particular kind of program. You know, some people feel like impressions on a paid advertising campaign is a vanity metric. You know, some people prefer to track clicks as opposed to impressions. So it kind of depends. Yeah, I mean, think about the typical billboard, right? Uh, you know, vanity to the extreme. Oh, I'm promoting my company on the side of the road. And I know that there are 100,000 cars driving by the highway every single month. That's a vanity metric because that doesn't exactly equate into revenue metrics at all. Um, I remember once I was accused uh, in my very first business of a vanity metric because I tracked the number of catalog requests in my mail order catalog business. But then I was able to actually connect a catalog request all the way through the buyer's journey to a sale. And I said, it's not a vanity metric. It is a leading indicator that doesn't go directly to that, but it's very important. The metrics were um, 400 catalog requests and then subsequently 400 catalog sent resulted in 40 orders, a 10% conversion rate. And each one of those orders had an average engagement size based upon my gross margin. You could see uh, in very quickly how catalog requests equated right to net profit. And while people were confused, to me, I knew that if there was a week with lots of catalog requests, it was going to result in sales two, three weeks from now. And that was important to me. Sometimes people have all sorts of, you know, wacky things, uh, uh, but if you can string it back to how does it connect to revenue, it's really not a vanity metric. What you want to stay away from are things that people are trying to sell you. And there's where the billboard salesman would say, but you have 100,000 impressions a month. Your simple question is, great, how many of those do you anticipate will result in sales opportunities from people seeing my billboard? When the salesperson can't answer that, it might be a vanity metric that they're trying to pull, uh, pull a fast one on you. Hey, did you just date yourself with your catalog direct mail order business? Well, my very first business was 1997. So yes, I guess so. It was <laughs> yeah. pre-internet. We sent out hundreds of thousands of catalogs. Uh, we use print ads to drive those requests. So yeah, I guess I was a bit dated. Where do you think this gray hair came from, man? Yeah, I mean, it's really not much different. You know, catalog requests is like website visitors, right? There's a direct yeah. correlation between the number of people that come to your site and the number of people that ask to talk to a rep. I mean, if you're doing a good job, that website visitor number can be, an, as you said, a leading indicator of sales opportunities if you're doing it right, for sure. I mean, even a quantity of like, cold calls, you know, dials each day. You know, you can look at it both sides of the coin, right? Dials are just the leading indicator. I don't know if the salesperson is good. Are they dialing the right numbers? Is the list appropriate? There's a lot of factors in there. But once you crack the code on outbound, well, it might be a thousand calls equals 10 meetings equals one new customer. Even though those numbers seem a little bit uh, arduous to accomplish, they still would be a leading indicator that could be connected to the, you know, the outcome of revenue. Yes. Let's not talk about outbound cold calling. Matt, I don't think you're going to get me to be supportive of that. No, I didn't mean that. But a lot of people say, I got my people dialing 100 calls a day, which I think is a little bit misplaced, but they think that it's productive. And that's why it's a vanity metric. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And right, I got a good question here because we didn't talk about this yet. So let's open up this can of worms. The question is, you didn't talk about lead scoring as a metric. Uh, number of SQLs over a certain threshold. Can you talk about that a little bit? So Eric, you're, you're the sales guy. Can you dig into this lead scoring conversation and how that contributes to our metrics talk? Yeah, I actually don't think enough people embrace lead scoring and it's pretty powerful, especially since we can quantify a lot of activity on the internet today. So what lead scoring is, is simply assigning a point value to activities that a prospective or current client is executing that you can track. So let's say we get 20 points for coming to the website. We get 30 points for downloading a white paper. We get 80 points for sitting in on a webinar. And we know that our threshold where they cross over from MQL to SQL is 200 points. That is pretty powerful information because what we're doing is using technology in the background to basically quantify, is this person engaged enough that sales should be speaking with them? And then you draw your dotted line might be 200, might, you could be more aggressive at 150, you could be a little bit more passive at 350, but wherever your dotted line is, that's when not only it crosses over from MQL to SQL, but automatically the sales team is alerted. We now have someone that's qualified as a sales qualified lead. You should reach out to them, email, phone call, connect with them on LinkedIn, whatever it might be. So 
the lead scoring is actually not directly in the line of a revenue cycle, but it's adjacent to that. Meaning that if I can get lead score people over 200 to now get into the buyer cycle journey, it's just another channel that I can use to have my sales team reach out and introduce themselves to folks. Now, we always talk about cold versus warm, right? We just talked about cold emailing and cold calling, but here's a case where you can obviously see the person is indicating intent or interest by going to webinars and downloading white papers and going back to your website three times. I don't think there's anything wrong with reaching out to them and saying, hey, I noticed there's a lot of activity on your company's end. Maybe we should get together for a conversation. Once again, starting the sale. So think about it as like off-ramps and on-ramps. Lead scoring is a great way for it to be an on-ramp into the buyer's journey that maybe is a little bit ignored or people who aren't watching those numbers or using technology to help them. Yeah, you, you brought up an interesting point. So for uh, clarification purposes, in our model, we call a sales qualified lead someone that is interested in talking to us. So someone who comes out of the forest and says, I want to talk to you guys. And they fill out a form, they chat, they, they call into the office. It really doesn't matter what vehicle they use to reach out to us. We don't know whether they're qualified or not, but they want to talk to us, right? So when it comes to lead scoring, I think what you want to use lead scoring for is from a metrics perspective is how many of our sales qualified leads are above a certain threshold to, to Eric's point, because you want reps to be spending their valuable time with the best potential prospects, right? So if someone just to comp let's compare two prospects, someone that has a high lead score and someone has a low lead score, right? So someone might come to the website homepage and then connect with us, right? So Technically, that's a sales qualified lead that would be a relatively low lead score because they did one thing, right? Now, compare that person who went to our pricing page, went to the team page, uh, down downloaded something, signed up for an upcoming webinar, uh, maybe came back to the page a, a day later. They're going to have a very high lead score. They're going to reach out to talk to a rep, and you basically have two equally two two leads that are the same stage of the process with two different scores mm -hmm. and you want your reps to respond aggressively to the lead that has a high score and maybe you're gonna ask them i'm not gonna say not follow up aggressively but they have to prioritize like everyone spends all day prioritizing what they're working on you want the reps to go after the people that have a lot of activity and have shown a lot of intent first and then get around to the other person. You know, maybe it's the same day, but later in the day versus the other one in the beginning of the day. I don't know what your sales process looks like, but the difference between those people who score high and those people who score low could be a metric mm -hmm. that you would not have if you didn't have a lead scoring model in place, right? And you then can follow that line of thinking and saying, what percentage of highly scored sales qualified leads are becoming sales opportunities and what percentage of lower scored sales qualified leads are becoming opportunities. And I think you'll see pretty quickly a major difference in those, the conversion rates, those higher scoring lead uh, numbers should convert at a higher rate than the ones below, which really just justify why you want your reps going after those lead people with a high lead score first and the people with a lower lead score second. One caveat, Mike, referrals typically do not have high lead scores because they're already bought in that it's okay to talk to that company. So I might say to my buddy, uh, Hey, you, you got a good plumber. He goes, Oh, this guy, he did my entire plumbing system and he was always on time and the neatest guy ever. I go to their website. I fill out the form. I'd like to talk to a plumber. I didn't do anything else because that was being done behind the scenes. So you have to be careful and not use absolutes. You really have to figure out the kind of uh, middle of the road on how you want your salespeople to behave. Everybody should be talked to, but you're right. If someone had a 200 lead score and the next person has a 25 lead score, probably going to do the 200 lead score call first. Yeah, that's an interesting point on the referral. You could identify that in the contact in the form that they're filling out asking mm. to meet with us when you and have then, a source right and they put referral in and that automatically bumps up their lead score to the high priority threshold and the rep jumps on it immediately that's exactly right because referrals come with a baked in testimonial the trust and safety are there because my buddy told me it's okay to call that company that should be it also you could break out the referrals 
from the other batch and treat them differently than you would anybody who came in via digital or promotions or paid advertising or something like that. So a lot of different ways to skin that cat. But at the end of the day, Mike, it does come down to the metrics that you're applying to that because you couldn't figure out how to handle referrals unless you reviewed the metrics that are associated with those leads. Yeah, let's just stay on this topic of lead scoring for a minute because it's very interesting in the metrics conversation. So like we know there's a lot of ways to do a lead scoring model. You could do one that's very complicated and you could do one that's very simple. So how would you recommend to someone who's just getting started with this? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're going to say simple, but like what are some of the things that you mentioned a couple of them, but maybe you could even like uh, prototype a simple lead scoring model. Like what would be included besides some of the things that you mentioned that a company could get started with setting it up themselves and starting to use it without much help? Yeah. So if you're going to be simple, let's just uh, pick a number. We'll, we'll talk uh, four touches, right? That's enough that we want to uh, at least start the conversation around lead scoring. So what are those four touches? One would be go to the website. There's probably nobody you're going to close for a B2B complex sale, high ticket average and long sales cycle, unless they've been to your website. So let's give them a, a point or two for going to the website. The second is, is that if they are going to be a qualified prospect, they're probably going to engage in some content because once again, a B2B sale is complex. I need content to figure it out. I need to figure out which firm I should start speaking with. The engaging with the content would be very important. So if they downloaded something, if they viewed the blog page, if they um, took your challenge or filled out a quiz, those are things that should be valued highly with points. Then I would say, if they came back to your website frequently in a short period of time, it indicates pain, right? Because if I'm looking to buy a piece of land in 2022, and I'm now sitting here in 2021, I might do a little research this week, let it lay for two weeks, and I might come back to it. Maybe over the holiday season, I do a little bit more work because I don't have as much work to do, and I have free time to pursue my, my hobby or passion. So condensed visits indicate a higher score. Then I would think that if they uh, scheduled a meeting, they would zoom to the top of the list of the lead score. So maybe if we just look at four metrics, did they come to the website? Did they engage with content? Did they come back to the website or, and or view multiple pages? And did they fill out a form? Would be four simple metrics that would start the conversation because that person, despite what they look like, is going to be 10x more valuable than some kind of outbound uh, activity you're involved in. So one, you need a marketing automation platform like HubSpot that has lead scoring tools built into it. So you can set that up, spend an hour, give point totals, make sure you have your alerts set up when they reach that dotted line that someone's alerted that that person should be reached out to, have a templatized script for the call or script for the email ready to go. So as soon as they cross that threshold, they immediately get some outreach from you and then track how many of those outreaches actually turned into conversations. And you'll start to build a lead scoring model. Now, how do you go complex? Well, let's say that your company does really well when you're dealing with firms that are involved in manufacturing, but you don't do that well historically with firms that are professional services. If you they click on the thing that they're a professional services firm on the field of the form, give them negative 25, knock down their score because you don't do well with that and you don't want them to rank. If they happen to be a manufacturer, give them a plus 50 and send them to the front of the line because that's where you have a lot of case studies and relevant examples and referenceable clients that you can send them to help close that deal. So there you have positive and negative adjusting score, which starts to go down the road of being complex because now you're really fiddling with some of the more granular parameters on what could be defined. Now, what you don't want to do is have your score so uh, uh, open-ended that all sorts of non-qualified leads are coming in because there's so many different factors they can rank for that now you're getting unqualified people in there. So, you know, complex is good because you're trying to get a, a, a closer and closer uh, shot at the target. But if you get a little too crazy, then you start getting all sorts of uh, uh, MQLs coming in and that could distract your sales team from closing the leads. Yeah, I mean, you could really just to talk a little bit more about complexity, you can score based on role, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a, you know, a procurement person, they would get a lower score than a C-level person, right? You can, you can uh, score by pain. Like I'm sure you get, all of you guys have seen websites where they ask you, when are you planning on making a purchase in the next 30 days, 30 to 60 days, 90 days out? Like, so you can score on, on um, planned purchase uh, in terms of the form. So there's a lot of potential opportunities to build complexity. The other thing that I'd leave you with, and then we'll move on from lead scoring is 
you want to look at this as an ongoing exercise. Uh, Square two actually just went through this a couple of weeks ago where we tweaked our lead scoring model to, to make it a little more narrow to produce a better qualified lead for, for uh, the sales team to follow up on. So you want to be constantly fiddling with it. You want to constantly be optimizing it. You want to be getting feedback from the reps in terms of, well, how good was that lead I just sent you? Because it had a really high lead score. I want to make sure it matches up with your expectations and your idea of what a highly qualified sales opportunity is. And if it's in alignment, great, stick with it. If it's not, maybe go back and make some adjustments to it. So like a lot of the things we talk about here, this ongoing optimization is important. The idea of sales operations and marketing operations and revenue operations is, is very new and very important. Someone in your company has to have the assignment to be adjusting the lead scoring model based on feedback from sales and, and data and, and all the things that are going into those discussions to hone it in and improve it over time to the point where you have this beautiful model that is bubbling up amazing sales opportunities and reps are jumping on them and they're closing them at a very high rate. Like Eric mentioned earlier, you should not be looking at a 20 or 30% close rate. You should really try to get this to the point where you're submitting proposals and closing 80 or 90% of them or else you're not submitting the proposal or else you're not calling it a sales opportunity. You don't want to have your sales process fail at the end. There's, there's a saying in sales, you want to get to know early in the sales process. You don't want to hear no at the end. You want to hear no at the beginning. What you want to hear at the end is yes, because you've really qualified them and you're only working with people that are going to say yes, or you're not, you're not giving them that proposal. Right. A uh, quick thing about close rate you have to determine if someone's going to be qualified in. And if they do qualify in, you want to put a lot of work into that prospect to achieve that 80, 90% close rate. Too often we see companies basing close rate on like lead to close deal. It should be qualified opportunity to close deal. And that would be a more accurate picture of where you should leverage your energies. Um, too many people say, oh, my close rate is 10%, but they're basing it upon the, a lead all the way through to a close deal we actually look at it as a sales opportunity to close deal. And that gives you a, a clear picture. Awesome. A couple more questions here. So this is a good one because it comes up frequently. I keep getting the executive team's pushback on the accuracy of our data. Have you dealt with this in the past? How can I either fix it or prove to them that it's correct? So Eric, we've had this, this situation before. We've shown data to clients and they've said, well, I don't think that's accurate. So what are some techniques that this person could potentially use to help their executive team have more confidence in the data that they're sharing? Yeah. So the first thing is marketing people and salespeople, when they're going in to talk to the executive team, love charts and graphs, right? Hey, I put together a PowerPoint. I'm going to show you the thing. And they see everything going up and to the right. And then they're asking for either money or resources or whatever in their pitch, right? But because everybody on the leadership team is not uh, adept to understanding what's behind those numbers, they get scared. They don't want to allocate budget. They don't want to say yes to something, right? I found that if you walk them through what's behind the numbers, that works out pretty well. Let me show you how I calculated our close rate and why I need a sales enablement person or a sales engineer. And that's why I'm asking you for $72,000 in the budget. You see here, A, B, C, D, E show them how it's calculated. A lot of people just assume, and, and we do it ourselves a lot, right? We talk in, um, um, what do you call it? Um, acronyms. Uh, acronyms, thank you. We talk in acronyms to clients who aren't marketing people. And I can see they're like, oh, what's ABM? What's ABM? And someone's going to explain this. So I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to ask what it is. But if we would just say a marketing qualified lead, in other words, an MQL is calculated this way. Now they can start to get the background behind the numbers and that would get buy-in from the team. Too often, the marketing and salespeople are wrapped up in their own vernacular or what that data means to them and not really sharing it with a mean who has to support them in order to you know, kind of move the needle or be resources or hiring or ad budgets and things like that. Yeah, I'm going to take a different perspective. That's right. Absolutely. That's, a, that's very good advice. I'm going to give you a slightly different perspective. And I've noticed that when we talk to prospects, we're spending a lot more time these days talking about the quality and the state of their data. When in the past, two or three years ago, when we talked to, data, when we talked to clients about their data, it was for a very short conversation. How many contacts do you have in your email database? 5,000. Okay, great. Let's move on. And we've started to realize that the quality of the data, 
the completeness of the data, um, the state of the data in terms of how segmented it is or how old it is are all really relevant to the quantitative nature of, of, of revenue generation today. So I think if you're having trouble with the executive team, you got to back up a little bit and you got to look at the data and you got to walk them through an exercise that shows them that the data in the system is accurate and here's why. We cleaned it, we appended it, we reviewed it, everyone agreed. These are all active prospects. These are all active clients. These are all legitimate visitors to the website. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it like a, uh, what's it called? When the accountants kind of like do a review of your company. Uh, yeah, uh, certified statements. Right, right, right. I don't think you need to have like certified data by any stretch of the imagination, but- Audited, audited. Audited, audited, right. But Eric's right. I think if you're, and we do data audits a lot. I think if you have someone do a data audit and the executive understands the data audit and they sign off on it and there's an agreement. Look, we all agree. The data is accurate. We, we went through an exercise to make sure it's clean and accurate and complete and, and organized properly. So when we look at the information in dashboards or I report on it, we're all going to agree this data is valid and we're going to use it to make decisions. I think that's a step that a lot of people skip and that could potentially run you into trouble down the road when you're trying to tell a story and people are, are not feeling like the data is even worth considering. So my advice would be to take a step back, do a data audit, go, go through some uh, exercises to uh, clean up the data, certify the data, like Eric said, and, and get everyone bought in on it. And then I think you'll have a lot better time with the uh, conversations around what the data is telling you a little further down the road. Hopefully that makes sense. Great point, sense. great point. All right, so uh, let's see. Um, oh, this is a good one. And I hope it's not redundant, but it was a good question. If it's, if it's, if it's similar, we'll, uh, we'll move on. I'm a new VP of marketing at a software company. I wanna to move to data-driven decision-making. Do you have any suggestions on how to get the executive team to stop making assumptions talking about their opinions or past experiences and start making decisions based on data only. So you know what this person is saying, Eric, you know, they're, they're in the meeting and someone's saying like, well, in my past job, this worked and this is what we should do when there's actual data, performance data on their particular company and they're kind of dismissing it. So is this different than our other question or not? Well, the advice for the person is get a new job because <laughs> the, uh, seriously, the task of educating the team on like, well, I think we should spend money on Phillies tickets and take out some prospects. That's marketing. And that takes out of my budget, knowing that that's not the way that people buy. That's I don't even know what category that's in. I mean, I guess it's marketing, you know, whatever. But the point I'm trying to make is that you have an unsophisticated team, no matter how hard they're trying to make data driven decisions, it's going to be pushing that boulder uphill for years to come. Um, you look at our other question, we talked about educating the leadership team on some of the nuances, but this is like gut and feel I just just not it's just not a way to spend money. Now, sometimes you can get around that by um, uh, uh, taking small steps right so hey I want to do X. And I, I have some anticipations. I want to send out a thousand emails. I want to get a hundred people registered for this webinar. I want to get 50 to show up and I'm going to get two clients out of it. If I get two clients out of it, I'll come back to you. And then we'll talk about a bigger chunk of activity. So, you know, sometimes doing a little pilot program for the leadership team to show them how you can use the data and how it could be very powerful and result in either revenue or profit would be a good stepping stone. But if you're working for a company where they're talking about all sorts of things that have nothing to do with data, maybe it's time to think about working with a team that's like data forward in their thinking. I think that's good advice. I would agree with that. I think sometimes you're maybe in a situation where you're just not going to be able to change them. And I think in that situation, moving on might be your best move. Uh, I also like Eric's idea of setting expectations. No matter what you're doing from a marketing or sales perspective, if you do know your baselines, like we talked about at the very beginning of the show, then you can go to the executive team and say, here's what I'm expecting to happen. I'm expecting our close rate to go from 
33% this month to 38% next month. And here's how I'm going to try to drive that improvement. If you can string together a couple of successes, I think you'll get a much better response than uh, trying to present a whole big package of data as an example. And if you can get some wins under your belt, they should start to listen more intently and be more receptive to some of the things you want to do because you, you're, you're, you're uh, being very transparent, you're using data to be transparent, and you're delivering. You know, if they don't feel like going from 33 to 38 is a legitimate improvement, then they should tell you that. Like you, you should gain their agreement on your objectives around different parts of your program. You know, if they want a 10% improvement in a single month, well, you got to talk about that. Is that legitimate? Is that fair? Is that, is that reasonable? Can I achieve that given this particular sales team in this particular month? Maybe, maybe not. But if you can agree on what your objectives are and you can deliver on those objectives, they should start to give you more rope to do some of the things that you want to do. So maybe quitting is a bit of an aggressive stance. And, and if over time you can't get them to move, you, you should consider moving on. But trying to get some buy-in around some very specific tactics, I think will also uncover whether you have a group of people there that are open to this kind of different approach, or maybe they're not. And then if they're not moving on might actually work out. That's sad. Person's looking well, for a new job now. Hey, look, there's plenty of people who would love to have a, a data-driven sales ops person, a data-driven rev ops person, a data-driven marketer. So I think if you're in a company and you're not getting that kind of recognition, attention, and, and uh, backing from the leadership, you ought to move on. I mean, send us your resume. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you're out, if the question you ask the person is out there, send us your resume. We'll right. Get. right, right. All right. Cool. Um, all right. So I got another question here. Um, Wait, Mike, there's nine minutes left. What didn't you have a special segment today? I'm not doing a love it or leave it today. I'm, okay. I'm, you know, we're, we're, we're a show. We don't have to do the same segment every, every, <laughs> okay, uh, it's every episode. Yeah. Right. All right. And this is a good one because I know we've talked about this before, but can you talk about shared metrics for a revenue team? How does both sales and marketing get measured as one? So Eric, I think you have some experience with a book called Fire Your Sales Team Today that goes deep into this concept of a revenue team. How can we jointly measure a company that has smartly combined sales, marketing, and service into a revenue team? Okay, so I got a lot to say on this topic, but I'll keep it short. The first thing is we have to understand what goals and objectives we have as a team, right? So I'll give you an example. Let's say that we're at capacity manufacturing wise, and we don't even want any new clients, right? Because we are just at our thing. We're building a new plant that's supposed to come online nine months from now. Well, the typical example of driving revenue might not apply in that situation. We might have some other roles for the marketing, like let's start preparing the introduction of our new product, which isn't due out, right? Till for let's say 90 days. So you have to decide, like, where do we want to go? The assumption is that a revenue team is always looking to drive revenue. But really, if the sales and marketing team gets together with leadership and says, what can we do to support the overall objectives of the company? You might be surprised that it's not just revenue. There could be other things as well. So the first thing is getting on the same page. However, let's use the example of driving revenue because that's going to be the typical function of the revenue team. If you're driving revenue, that we have to use that as our ultimate overarching goal. But then we have different roles inside the revenue team. Very simply, we have a marketing half and we have a sales half, right? Oh, sorry, marketing half, sales half, and a customer service half. They should be in the revenue team also. And now we're talking about, okay, what do we need to do to hit the $10 million in additional revenue we're looking for? Well, because we're data-driven based on today's episode, we can now look at the buyer's journey and say, well, if we want to add $10 million, well, the revenue cycle model shows us that we have to get twice the amount of people to our website. Okay, all you marketing people over there, you share in that responsibility. We need to go from 10,000 visitors a month to 20,000 visitors a month in the next 12 months. Underneath that, the marketing folks go away and they might have subtasks in order to do that, but they're working on driving traffic. Second thing is, 
they're saying, well, if we drive traffic, that doesn't pay the bills. We need sales to pay the bills. So how do we convert that traffic into our database and start nurturing? So the sales folks, they're working on that. Meanwhile, all those activities roll up to our ultimate goal of driving more revenue. Now, while that little sub-meeting is going on, the customer service group is saying, well, we could help you in that $10 million. We could get $2 million of that dollars by upselling and cross-selling our existing accounts. We need email follow-ups. We need really cool forms on our website to get a sample of a new product to show them what they should be buying, so forth and so on. Now, you got the marketing team driving revenue. You got the customer service team participating and saying, it's not 10, it's two. We're gonna, it's, it's eight. We're going to take two off the table, and we're going to work on that over here. And now the sales team says, okay, well, if we need to close $8 million, these are some of the data points we need. I need 50 leads a month, and they have to be qualified leads. I can't be spinning my wheels. And if I need 50 leads a month, I'm going to need some support materials because I can't hire more salespeople, so I got to do more with the few salespeople I have. How can I have things that support me? Case studies, testimonials, videos. How are we going to set up webinars, private webinars for our prospective clients? And now everybody is talking about revenue, but we're breaking it down into the sub-activities that are necessary for it all to roll up to revenue. And that's the way that a typical revenue team should operate. I want to just go back and emphasize one more time that customer service has a seat at the revenue team table because they can drive revenue and they actually have the easiest task because people already love your company. They want to buy more, but they're just not communicated enough or in the right way. That's a really great example. And I think the big takeaway is when these three departments are working together, you get a one plus one equals three out of it. You know, you're talking, marketing is talking directly to customer service. Sales is providing feedback to marketing. Marketing is taking that feedback and making adjustments as opposed to in the old days, you know, marketing puts their stuff together and throws it over the fence to sales. Sales kind of half asses it and you get a, a weak effort, you know, and generally in my experience, not too many people pay any attention to customer service. They're kind of over there on their own answering the phones and trying to keep customers happy with not that much support from anybody. So I think when you have these three teams working together, you get a much better push towards the revenue goals. And the, the metrics are pretty straightforward. Cross incent everyone based on the shared revenue goal. Uh, uh, SLAs or service level agreements are really good for marketing sales and customer service. Um, get them talking so that there's a, a direct line of feedback from each of those groups into the other group so that they know exactly what's working, what's not working, and can quickly make adjustments to that. So, you know, you can create a whole set of marketing metrics, sales metrics, customer service metrics that everyone looks at together and contributes to improving. And then you can have an overlay on top of that that are company-specific revenue metrics like dollars and number of customers closed and average revenue per customer and share of wallet in terms of how much extra revenue you're getting from the customers that you do have. Um, net promoter score is a great cross team metric. You know, how happy your customers are is, is a question you can ask right when they become customers, which will reflect what the marketing and sales experience looked like. And then after a month or two, how, how's the customer service experience been? Is that number going up? Is it going down? Those are relevant to all three of those teams. So there's a lot of metrics there. I want to do one more question, Eric, and then I'll let you go because- I'll talk metrics all day, Mike. Well, this is a slightly different because it, look, for a lot of companies, this is new, right? So the, the question is who is supposed to be working on this, right? Like it's not the salespeople, the marketing people have their hands full with campaigns, right? And the- customer service people are answering the phones and responding to inquiries. So like who is responsible for creating these dashboards, tracking these metrics, making sure the data is accurate, uh, reporting on, on performance. Uh, wh whose job is this inside the well, company? Because it's new to a lot of companies that requires some expertise and some bandwidth. Now this is not an ad for our agency, but that's kind of the way that you get a big project like this done is to like bring in someone who can help you. You're right. Your customer service person is not putting together data visualization of uh, sales and marketing metrics, right? They're, it's just not in their ballywick. And that's where having an outside resource come set it up, train your team how to use it, and then 
let them fly from the nest is a good solution in this area. Because you're not talking about ongoing years and years of retainer work. We're talking about a project where you're like, help me set up my revenue team metrics and the reporting that goes with it so that it, my people have the data they need to perform their jobs. I'll give you an example. If we set up a dashboard that compared existing customers' revenue last year versus this year and average amounts uh, of spend per customer, just those two pieces of data, and we gave access to the customer service people and it was in real time, they can now say, hey guys, we're ahead of last year at this month, we're behind more resources, less resources, at least it would be flashing red or green in their face saying this is where we are today. Without that, they're spinning their wheels trying to figure out where are we, what's going on, how much should we be selling? And those are simple pieces of information that could be extracted from the data feed and then visualized on a simple dashboard for the customer service team. Now, throw in a third metric, net promoter score, that might lead to, well, wait a minute, we're not doing well on net promoter score. Let me take some of my budget as the customer service manager and put it into training or put it into hiring and recruiting to get better people, not the ones I have currently that aren't performing well. So just those little metrics can lead to all sorts of business decisions. Right now in the age of technology, too few people lean on the data and the insights to make decisions that would really just cut right to the chase, right? If we don't have a good net promoter score, our people need to do better taking care of our clients. Let's act upon that. As opposed to looking back over two years, gosh, our, our sales are down and our attrition from our clients is up through the roof. What's going on? We could have nipped that in the bud with a small project of extracting the data and then feeding it to the people that have to make decisions. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I was kind of going, look, four or five years ago, there wasn't this kind of technology. There wasn't this focus on data. So, you know, this role that we're talking about didn't exist. I mean, marketing people kind of flew by the seat of their pants. It was a lot of like, get your name out there, go to trade shows, run ads. Did people see your ads? Yeah. Okay, great. I mean, I remember when I ran marketing for a software company, like, and they were very progressive for their time. And you're talking about almost 20 years ago, like it wasn't really metric driven. It was just, you know, did we execute our event strategy? Did we execute our PR campaign? Like it was all about execution, no, nothing about data. So there wasn't this need for this operations role. And there was no technology. There wasn't, or it was just starting to be technology. There was no need for this operations role. Today, you need an ops person to, to handle this. You, and if you're running Salesforce as an example, and you're, it's a pretty big installation, then you might have a Salesforce administrator. That's a pretty typical title for someone that can go into Salesforce and create reports and dashboards and make adjustments to your technology uh, when you need it. But if you're looking for somebody to kind of cross marketing sales and customer service, then you might be looking for someone with a revenue operations background. And you might need a new person at your company who's called a revenue operations manager who is responsible for these dashboards. They are responsible for the data. They're responsible for the technology. They're responsible for supporting marketing sales and, and customer service from an operations perspective, process systems, methodology, technology, analytics, insights. It's a pretty big job. And if your company's a little smaller, that might look like a marketing operations person or a sales operations person, someone that's focused in on maybe one of these departments primarily and stretching into the others. Occasionally, it's going to depend on the size of your company and the size of your, your revenue um, team. But that might be something you want to consider. And, you know, Eric's right. You don't necessarily have to hire someone. There are a lot of agencies that provide RevOps services. Um, that you could potentially look at plugging in and bolting on in a quicker fashion than maybe finding someone and hiring them and onboarding them and getting them tuned up. That could take you, you know, four to six months for sure. Yes, sir. In conclusion, for everybody who's listening now and saying, shoot, I got to hire another person. And Mike just said they might be on the expensive side. Take the list of your 18 salespeople right now. Find the person who's not hitting their monthly quotas at the bottom of the performance list send them on their path to happiness somewhere else, 
take their base salary of seventy-five dollars to $100,000 and reinvest it into marketing so that the remaining 17 salespeople get the benefit of the data and the leads and the sales opportunities that we're talking about. It's such a simple fix because I've never met anybody who has a company where all the salespeople were performing at a high level. And that's a hard decision to get rid of someone. But if you want to move down the road of what's going to be contemporary, specifically in 2022, you got to invest in some of this revenue op stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, I'll agree. And, and just to wrap up, uh, a lot of clients are finding that they can do the same amount of revenue with less reps. So uh, uh, you want a that's marketing. People, people don't want to be sold. They right, just a need a little bit of help. A marketing ops person, a sales ops person, a rev revenue ops person is going to make your team much more efficient and you will be able to do the same or more revenue with uh, less reps. Uh, so I think that's a very good, solid piece of advice for us to wrap up on. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure. I think it's been a good show. Always interested in your feedback. You can shoot me an email directly, mike at square2marketing.com. If you want a revenue cycle, also email me, happy to set up a time to talk about your company and produce one for you. Just let me know. You can catch the show in its recorded version on our YouTube channel, Square2 Marketing, on our website. At the bottom, there's a link, What's Wrong With Revenue. All of our video shows are posted there. And if you're into podcasts, the show is on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Next week, we're going to be doing, we're going to be talking about not metrics, is there going to be a love it and leave it uh, segment? We're going to do love it or leave it. We're going to be talking about the right resources to drive revenue growth. A lot of companies are under-resourced or incorrectly resourced. So we're going to be talking about how you get access to the right resources to help you hit your revenue goals. Thanks so much for attending. Sorry we went over a little bit, but it was a very hot topic with a lot to talk about. Have a great night. Have a great afternoon. And we'll see you soon. See you later.